Welcome to the next edition of FutureX Podcast. Today, we're actually going to be having a conversation around the four transformations in higher ed. And we're going to dive right into it. I'm going to ask Joe a little bit about the HR transformation. It's the first of the conversation we need to have. And Joe, you know, you've written an article about it. I'd love for you to start to educate our audience about what does HR need to do in terms of the transformation for higher ed? Yeah, I'll start with this statement that um, status quo HR, and we'll define that here in a minute, but status quo HR is the root cause of the unusually high great resignation taking place in higher ed today. There's a certain amount of great resignation we should expect because it's impacting the whole world. But what's happening in higher ed is unusually high. And I blame it on status quo HR. Can, can you define what status quo HR yeah, means? Yeah, status quo HR is very much like the academic enterprise, HR systems, um, policies, procedures, methodologies, approaches were designed decades ago. And they've been through very little innovation since then. And status quo HR, another word for that is institution-centric HR. HR was built decades ago and installed with an approach of let's protect the organization. Let's protect the school from getting sued. Let's protect us from having problems. Let's, it's protect, protect, protect. And it was all about the institution. And back in the day when everybody wanted to work in higher ed, and if, one, if you trained yourself in education, that was where you were going to go. There was always a pipeline of talent waiting to work. You could do that. But now, post-pandemic, you don't have that luxury. So the command control, top-down, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, let us give you 70 pages of policies and procedures, is very broken. And the good talent, I'm not talking about average talent and the people who just want to punch a clock and get through the day. The good talent, what you and I would describe as A talent, is looking at that going, I really don't need to adhere to that anymore. There's another campus, there's another school that'll recruit me for more money and a better quality of life than what's being offered here. And that flight risk is really expensive. So when we think about A talent, and we know it in our consulting world mm -hmm. of what that means, what does it mean to have B talent on campus? What does it mean to have C level on campus? And what can A talent do different in the transformation of higher ed? Well, I think A talent is, is going to do what they naturally do, right? They, they're just going to innovate. They're going to transform. They're going to push boundaries. They're going to ideate. They're going to do the stuff they do. They're going to carry the load of three people. Yeah. They're going to do the job of four. Um, they're going to eat, live, and breathe their campus or their university. The problem is if HR does not transform very, very soon, they become targets for the next school and the next school to acquire because schools are hungry for A talent. There's very little A talent available. And for the first time in a long time, A talent is becoming mobile. It used to be that presidents and provosts would move around, like every few years they sign a new contract, right? But that next layer of leadership would pretty much stay. Not so much anymore because they're, start they're starting to recognize that they are very recruitable. And HR has to do something. So we, we've identified some things HR needs to do to transform. So when you think about moving away from the status quo HR, what are some of the steps that, you know, institutions have to think about? What are the, we, we recognize the policy, we recognize yeah. the things that, you know, compliance, you, you, you start to uh, uh, understand that it's, that we have to work in a much more dynamic world. 
What does HR of the future look like? What are the steps to get to that uh, future? Yeah, you have to start by understanding what being institution-centric has cost you already or is costing you now, right? Each school is going to be different. In some cases, it's cost talent already. In some cases, it's costing morale. In other cases, it's causing uh, trust erosion in the leadership, right? It's, it's, there's this, there feels like the, I'm not cared for here. I'm just a number, right? Those are all consequences of status quo institutional centric HR, just dissatisfaction, disengagement, all those things, right? But to identify what it's cost at your school, one of the first steps to take is almost create a employee centric manifesto. In other words, you've been institution-centric, which in many cases is anti-employee. It's trying to protect the institution from the employee, right? So there's an us versus them. So you have to kind of go back to the drawing board, start from scratch, and say, if we could start all over and we could build an employee-centric organization, what would that look like? Write, Write a page, write two pages, write four pages, get the right people in the room and say, if we could reimagine everything we do, and for just for... Today's exercise, set aside all the regulatory compliance, set aside all the rules and regulations and government compliance we have to do. You'll get to that later. Put that all aside. What do we do to best serve the employee? Write it up in a, we call it a manifesto. Manifesto. You know, and I come from a civil servant state, you know, university. Uh, The mindset was we had to manage the rules of the institution. What happens... If, if we keep doing that in these, you know, uh, organizations, what is it going to, what it's going to do if we don't, why does it matter if, why does it matter if we just stay the same way? What, what's going to happen to that institution? And then what happens if we say to you, to the organization, Hey, let's, let's reimagine HR in a much different way. What are the ways of, of thinking of the consequences of them not getting to where they need to be. I think most schools are seeing the consequence now, okay. right? You're, you're, you have people leaving one school to go to another school. Okay, that's kind of normal. People move within any industry. But now you're starting to see people leave higher ed for jobs outside of higher ed. Look, let's use IT as an example. This is the probably the most at-risk part of any school's HR strategy. Number one, most IT people in higher ed are paid less. Right. So you're, you're kind of casting a mission pitch to them to say, look, come be part of something good. Yes, you could make more money somewhere else. But, but once they're here, if they arrive mission driven and then you cram them with a really outdated remote work policy and all these rules and regs. And then every six weeks they're being pitched on LinkedIn. Hey, we can make 50 grand more somewhere else. You can make one hundred thousand dollars a year more at this local startup or this tech company. How long is that tech talent going to stay? Now, what is it going to cost? Think about this, Matt. You and I both know that the future of higher ed is technology. The technology shop is going to be the main driver of the future of higher ed. In the past, the technology shop has sat in the back. Hey, fix computers, install software. That's who, you know, I can't log in. That's how we see the IT department in most colleges. And if colleges aren't transforming right now to move IT from the back of the room, to one of the biggest players at the table driving the future of the school, you're already behind. So think about this. Can you afford to let your IT talent erode? Or can you afford for a status quo institutional-centric HR policy 
to keep you from getting the best talent in town. Yeah, and I, when I think about HR and when I think about professional development, a lot of what I believe in, especially when you specifically said IT, is the ability for them to get exposed to the innovations, not by technology, but the practices. If you think about the world that we live in and the future of uh, work, or if you think about the smart retail, smart banking worlds, they're exposed to practices using the technology in a much different way. But if you go back to, hey, I got to do a transactional database, I got to put in my SIS, I got to keep the lights on, uh, they're not being exposed to anything that they haven't been exposed to. So they're, they're never qualifying themselves yeah. to do anything more. Now, that's why the Facebooks compete with Google and Google competes with Amazon, because those folks are being exposed to different technologies, but they're also exposed to new ways of running a business. But but think about this, Matt. You use the example of a Facebook or a Google yep. or an Amazon. What would you imagine the work environment is? They have very tight HR. Yep. They have a lot to protect against. So they they've got but does is there a difference between being in the IT shop at your college and the IT shop at Facebook, Google, what have they done to create an environment where people want to go work there, are excited to work there, have a good work-life balance, and all those things, even though there's regulatory compliance and all those things? The difference is one company built itself, one organization built itself around the employee, saying the employee is the key. We need the best, so we're going to build everything we do around attracting them. And another organization says, uh, we can get any employee we want whenever we want, so we're, we're going to make it about us. And now 30 years, 40 years, 50 years later, there's a massive price to be paid. So number one, you got to start by reimagining what things could look like if you were a employee-centric organization, not an institution-centric organization. Once you've defined what that is, we do these things, we do these things, we don't do these things, right? List what it looks like. Then step two would be you have to map the employee journey and question every policy and procedure that that employee intersects through this new lens of an employee-centric manifesto. Because you can look at your policies and procedures now and think they're all amazing because you're thinking institution-centric. When you start looking at those same policies and procedures through an employee-centric, you may find, oh, you know what? This one not, doesn't line up with our new manifesto. This one doesn't line up. Now, that doesn't mean you erase it. But you have, it allows you to go to the drawing board and say, what about this needs to be modified? What room do we have to make this align better with the organization we want to be? So that's step number two. Then you move to three, four, and five. So I just want to elaborate a little bit more on, you talk about a manifesto. Uh, we always write up manifestos with a culture in mind. Mm -hmm. Because a manifesto basically gives you the, the playbook that everyone reads and sings off of, yeah. right? I think the one of the biggest elements in HR and any organization, and even when we when we're at our campuses, about you know work from home and, yeah. and so forth, right? A lot of it is around trust. Mm -hmm. I, do I trust my employee to do to the do right the, thing? To do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And I believe it's a cultural thing. Yep. I believe it's productivity has to be defined, expectations has to be set, and a culture has to be built around trust. Yes. Because I believe um, the best people want to be at a place where they're trusted. Yes. How does higher ed shed the, you know, the notion of I have to protect... Against a lazy 
employee, employee. who's going to take advantage of me exactly and not produce and get me in trouble and all that right i think you're we're back to values we're back to the organization itself saying what is our values who what are our core values what are the seven eight ten words that describe who we are as an organization and do our employees understand how to align to those are managers holding people accountable for living out those values and coaching them in areas where they're not living those values. This is stuff that happens outside of higher ed. Companies can't succeed without it, but for some reason higher ed hasn't adopted some of these philosophies of saying, let's agree to a set of values, let's encourage people who are living the values, let's coach the people who aren't living the values, and then let's trust people to do the right thing until they prove that they won't, right? So that, because in the absence, like you said, in the absence of trust comes tradition. Well, let's lock this down, let's protect this, Let's take care of that. It, it comes back to that. So start with the manifesto, then look at the employee journey and audit all the policies and procedures against that manifesto to find areas where you could be in conflict with an employee-centric organization. And then don't forget to reimagine for the future of work, right? This is a, a, it's a, your baby to talk about the future of work. Well, the future of work at a college campus, you always have, have educated clients to say, look, not every job needs to be on campus. Not every job will be doing what it does today, right? All that stuff that you teach. Well, when was the last time HR reimagined its policies to align with the future of work? I think every HR department right now is working on a remote work policy, right? They had to do some drastic things during the pandemic. Now they're saying, okay, let's modify it for a longer term thing. But if you write your remote work policy through an institution-centric lens, it's going to suck for your employees because you're going to prove to them that they, you don't trust them, right? But if you stop now, do your manifesto, write, and then write an employee-centric remote work policy, you will be much more attractive to A-level talent. Yeah, when you talk about future of work, for me, it's about recognizing that the work that we do today is a little bit outdated. That when we think, when we were, wear a future of work lens, we're really looking at what are the innovations around that technology that enable me to, to create work differently. Yep. I use the, the com, you know, structure of structured and unstructured work. Structured work is anything that is sequential, rule-based, mundane, one-way conversations. It's, it's very much where a computer or a digital bot or anything can do. But the unstructured is where the humans come through, right. is the critical thinking and critical reasoning. And right now, HR, every time we say, let's automate, let's rethink the way that a office runs, we always have an HR discussion because everyone's afraid of their job being lost. And right. the reality of it is your job is not lost in the future work. Your job is transformed exactly. by the work of the future that is required by the campuses and the constituents that will come to your campuses. And I use the word constituents as opposed to students because a common student is 18 to 22. We're, we're moving away from that. And most institutions will recognize they have to move away from the traditional 18 to 22 and go to an adult learner, lifelong learner model. But you have to start serving them better with a future of work lens because they're expecting the same thing that they expect elsewhere by the technology, by the business, by the policy, uh, by the exposure and the ability for you to do, yeah. you know, the work around 
the future of work inside of a campus to be much more innovative than it is today. So HR needs to, I know HR is probably going to a lot of conferences and reading lots of articles and educating themselves up and upskilling themselves in this future of work thing. The question is, with all this knowledge you're gaining about future of work, how is that impacting strategy? How are you projecting three to five years out the kind of work that's currently done at your school, how it will likely be done in three years or five years, what roles absolutely have to be in a physical infrastructure on campus today versus three years from now versus five years from now? What's going to be the impact of cobots and robots and all those tools that are going to be available soon? And based on that, how do I design strategy? How do I build policies and procedures in anticipation of that? Because you can't wait for the future of work to arrive to then write the policies. You've got to start anticipating it now because, again, a talent wants to know where you're going. They're not interested in you saying, well, when we get there, we'll figure it out. They want to know that two years out, here's what's upcoming. In three years, we intend to be here. In five years, we believe we would have transformed to the point where all these jobs can be done, not just from home. Why, why, why does academic advisement have to happen on your campus? Why does it even have to happen in your city? or state? Couldn't, why couldn't you have academic advisors halfway around the country, even halfway around the world? HR needs to start thinking about that and building policies to accommodate that, because otherwise you're limiting yourself to a very specific geography for A talent. Think of your local community. There's some A talent there. There's a handful of people willing to relocate to come to you. But if you can expand your talent pool to a national or international talent pool, how much more A talent can you attract to your school? That's the future of work. And HR has to transform its mind out of institution-centric 60130 zip code and people who are available to work there. Yeah. And I think a lot of it is talent has options today. A talent definitely have options sure. today. You know, B talent may have options. Mm -hmm. C talent, they're looking for your options. Yeah, right? C talent, you want to see talent, you really want them working for your competitive school, right? But you need people and all that kind of stuff. But you're right. This is about the A and B, the Bs who can become A's, what's going to motivate them to go there and what's going to keep the A's here and attract more A's in. So the other thing, and I love to have this conversation with HR, right now, I someone gets hired into a role and they just sit. They mm -hmm. squat in that role. It stifles innovation in a campus in a role, because that one person's mindset, because they've never got exposed anywhere else, they've never went and tried something else, a lot of the things that we're thinking about is how do we remove that squatting type of HR, where I have a registrar's office, I have a financial aid director, I have an HR director who just squats That's in the it. role. How do we get higher ed to recognize, you know what, it's okay for us to get a talent for five years. Because that talent is going to come here and do amazing work and go and become really innovative somewhere else. Yeah. And we're going to bring the next set of talent to come and do the next five years of this transformation. How do you see HR playing a role in creating a dynamic workforce as opposed to a stagnant workforce? When I was growing up, it was... It was entitled if I can be in a place for 18 years and get my retirement and, and move on, right? Mm -hmm. That is not what a That's talent That's not what the want. future holds. Yeah. So this is where uh, professional development comes in. Every HR department in every college has invested heavily in leadership development, professional development. They got platforms. They got workshops. They got onboarding. They got all the stuff. I would argue that 90% of it likely needs to be reinvented from the ground up because it was designed 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. 
It's old, it's boring, it's not engaging, it, it wasn't built on next generation platforms. Your same employee that you're asking to sit there and watch a boring video on your on-demand platform is going home and watching Netflix, right? There, so the ability for on-demand good content, they're listening to podcasts. So how are you delivering? So the point being that part of the HR transformation is to look at how you do professional development and leadership development now and sit down and say, again, clean slate. How do we reimagine it in a Netflix, Amazon Prime world? And how do we deliver content that moves people, upskills them? We've, you, again, you talk about certificates and badges and incentives, right? How do you upskill people and create the incentives and the motivation system intrinsically to drive them to the next level? It's a lot of work and it's hard for HR to hear, oh my gosh, you got to gut what you're doing and start over but there's an incredible opportunity to be highly transformative in the process. Look at your policies and procedures, look at how you develop people and how much of your people development is focused on emotional intelligence, conflict resolution, empathy, listening, uh, adaptive leadership. Because when we talk to employees in a lot of colleges, one of their reasons that they're disgruntled, let's say, or acting like C's or B's when they really could be A's is because the manager who's managing them was never taught how to manage. They got promoted, but no one provided them the very critical tools of empathy, EQ, conflict resolution, coaching, and all that in a way that they could apply it. So now they're sitting, quote, above potential talent that feels stifled. They're sitting about potential talent that feels unheard. They're sitting about potential talent that doesn't feel they have a voice. So what do people do? They check out. They pull in the parking lot, turn off all their entrepreneurial behavior, punch their clock, go home, and they turn all their entrepreneurial behavior on at their local PTA. They turn all their entrepreneurial behavior on at their local church or their school district or whatever it is. There, they're super creative. At work, they're tuned out because the manager doesn't know how to lead. Yeah. So to answer your question, professional development in a, in a new world-class way that move, turns leaders into better leaders, into better leaders, into better leaders, and turns people into leadership developers and coaches. Then you have Bs turning into B pluses and B pluses turning into As and that mechanism of movement and mobility. Yeah, and, and, when, I'm, and I'm, when I think about this and I was just writing some notes on it is, one, let's look at the policies and drive just a really creative uh, employee-centric policy. Yeah that allows for them to be empowered, right? Two, wrap around the technology that allows you to do the things that humans should do. Yep. Three is create new practices and cultures that bring a uh, different experience. And then fourth is the experience of how to live that culture within that campus. So I, that's how I summarized yeah, yeah, it in a, a lot of ways. And, and in the article that we, we, you and I co-authored, we give kind of more specific. So in combination with listening to this, if this is intriguing you or you want to pass this on to your HR people, have them watch this, listen to this, and then also go through that article. And at least that's some initial steps to start a conversation internally of, are we due for transformation? Yep. Are some of the things the guy's saying kind of hitting some sore buttons? And if so, let's at least start the conversation of what would it look like to reimagine who we are as an HR organization, as a service organization? How do we reimagine our professional development, our leadership development? And how do we position ourselves for the future of work? to attract the best people and retain the ones we already have. Without it, Matt, 
It doesn't matter how much technology the college buys. It doesn't matter how much you spend on branding and marketing. If your HR department is stuck, your people will be stuck. And your greatest asset is your people. So you have to unleash the creative energy, the entrepreneurial capacity, the innovation capacity, and the passion of your people. And I would argue that today's HR stifles that. This has been great. And, you know, I, I'd like to really just close it out by saying, if you think about all these things, you're enabling leaders to be leaders. Yes. You're enabling them to manage in a way that they are allowing them to really create a culture that really drives a lot of things. But they're also growing within and they're becoming an asset. The reason is if you develop them and they feel they live in that culture, they're not leaving you. And that becomes an asset as you go. So I think, you know, the big thing that you stated was unleash the passion. And I think that's what HR companies and you have a great organizations ahead of you. has to do. So thanks for joining us. We hope you'll join us on the next session. And thank you, Joe. Have a great thank, day. Thanks so much.